0: Hey everybody, it's Terry McDougall with Marketing Mambo. And you may know that I'm an executive and career coach. And sometimes people ask me, Terry, what is the connection between being an executive and career coach and being the host of Marketing Mambo? Well, I was actually in marketing for 30 years before I made the transition in 2017 to be a full-time coach. And many of the people that I work with work in the marketing and advertising arenas. And many of them tell me that they really like working with me because I understand the difficulties and the nuances and the static and the conflicts that can happen when you work in marketing and or advertising. And so if you are running into issues where you are working as hard as you can and you're not getting the results that you'd like to at work, there's just not more hours in the day, you're not getting along with someone, you've gotten feedback that you're not sure what to do about, please reach out to me. I mean, part of the reason why I choose the people that I do to be on Marketing Mambo is because I... I am learning constantly about how to be more effective within marketing. And I choose my guests to help you understand how to be more effective and to get a deeper understanding of what it takes to be successful in this very demanding field. So I hope you really enjoy the guest that I have on today. His name's Ethan Decker. And we talked about lots of stuff that was fascinating to me. We even did a little bit of singing. So I hope it doesn't, uh, (laughs) I, I am not a professional by any stretch of the imagination, but I think that you'll be entertained by some of the things that we talk about today. And hopefully, again, you'll get a deeper understanding of the science of marketing because Ethan Decker actually is a scientist that got his start in ecology, believe it or not, but he's a very fascinating guy. Can't wait to share our conversation with you. And without further ado, let the Mambo begin. Welcome to Marketing Mambo with your host Terry McDougall. It's the fun and fast podcast where we cha-cha-chat with marketing movers and shakers from around the globe. I'm very happy today to have Ethan Decker as my guest. He is the founder of Applied Brand Science. Ethan, welcome to Marketing Mambo.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, Ethan, would you take a few moments and introduce yourself and your company to our audience?
1: Yes. I'm classically trained as a scientist, but I've spent a lifetime in advertising and marketing, which is a bit of a weird combination. I took a left turn in Albuquerque, literally, when I left academia and left doing ecology, which was my field of study, and got into journalism with an old friend of mine, and from there into market research, because there's a connection between journalism and market research, learning, listening, storytelling. And then from there into brand strategy, There were some folks while I was doing my market research who said, do you know anyone who who does strategy? And I kept saying no, and they kept poking me in the chest. So finally, I took the hint. And I've been doing brand strategy for about 15 years, working mostly with large companies like Procter & Gamble and Kellogg's, but also with small companies and startups. And now I've started Applied Brand Science to really help distinguish between, well, the shit and the shinola when it comes to branding and, and strategy and marketing, there's always someone selling some new snake oil even within the world of marketing. And I wanna know what's the bedrock that we can all stand on and agree upon that is true about brands and then how do we use that to build our brands?
0: Yeah, well, this is gonna be a very interesting conversation. So what attracted to me to you as a guest for Marketing Mambo initially was a post that you had about how sound is such an important part of branding and I want to get to that. But to segue off of your comment about the bedrock, from our conversation before I hit record, you mentioned that there are laws of branding that are really founded on science. So I'd love for you to talk more about the the laws of branding.
1: It's a very interesting field because it's young. I mean, physics has been around for hundreds of years. The Economics has been around for at least a century or two, but studying markets in this way and brands and com- and consumers and buyers is relatively young. It's only been around for about 50 or 60 years in a concerted way. And all, a lot of it was actually done in Australia. And before the age of the Internet, that was a universe away. So a lot of people didn't even hear about some of the work done at what's now the Ehrenberg Bass Institute. And they studied mostly large panels of buyer behavior to really see what do people actually do and how are markets actually structured, as opposed to what a lot of market research is, which is consumer surveys, which is a mix of wishful thinking and how people believe they are and what they can remember they bought in the past three months. Like, I don't know what I had for breakfast last week, much less how many packs of gum I bought in the past three months. So when you look at the real buyer behavior you start to see regularities, empirical generalities that look like law-like patterns. And sure enough, when they look around the world, Asia, the Americas, Europe, they start to see the same pattern. And they start to see it in high-brow places like luxury watches and consumer packaged goods like toilet paper and everything in between.
0: That's so interesting. It sounds like that this is sort of at the intersection of economics and psychology and maybe social science.
1: Indeed, it is a combination of all of those things because let's say you're talking about the laws of how people buy. And there are a couple of them. One of them is called the law of the repertoire, which is that most of us buy two or three brands in any given category. And we switch back and forth if they're on sale or depending upon what flavor we want that month or whether someone makes a a shirt that fits a little differently than the other shirt. And that is a mix of psychology and economics because the psychology of it is interesting that we want something safe and familiar, but we're always kind of looking for something new too, just in case it's a little better. And then there's the economics of it, which is when you look at thousands or hundreds of thousands of buyers mashed up together, you see very regular statistical patterns, which behave like laws.
0: Hmm, that's so interesting. So how do you help your clients use these laws of branding to be more effective and reach their business objectives more effectively with their marketing plans?
1: Step one is always to disabuse people of myths. I hate to say that there's a fair bit of mythology in marketing. And it, it comes out of the fact that our dominant metaphor in a lot of marketing is relationships. Relationships. We want consumers to fall in love with our brand and then to become loyal to our brand. But frankly, love and loyalty are really crappy metaphors when it comes to brands. Um, Let's say I might be a regular buyer of diamond kosher salt, which is the truth. Mm -hmm. For some reason, I'm really stuck on it. Um, Do I love it? I don't know. And loyalty, would would I go way out of my way to buy it? Maybe. But on the other hand, I don't care what pepper I put in my pepper mill you know, or my pepper shaker. So we're very brand fickle. Although the metaphor we always use is brand loyal. We talk about brand loyalty all the time. And really, we should be talking about brand habit or brand preference. So the first thing is to disabuse people of their myths. And the number one myth tends to be the myth of the passionate niche brand. A lot of people believe there is such a thing like mini cooper let's say in in mm. cars mm-hmm. that's a small brand but it's got passionate fans and so their level of loyalty is crazy and it turns out that's really really rare mostly the bigger the brand the more people repeatedly buy it because it's familiar
0: mm.
1: and small brands uh you're not so familiar with so you don't buy them as frequently
0: hmm. yeah that's- that's so interesting. Well, wh- what about brands like, you know, Apple or Harley Davidson, where people are just incredibly passionate and will sometimes tattoo the logo on their body?
1: <laughs> you know, what, what do you say
0: about those,
1: Terry? Those are the indelible images in our head, and then once we have the image in there, that's what we think is truth because, you know, that's one of the fallacies of how the brain works: is it just grabs whatever it can remember, and if there's a memorable image of people with a, a harley tattoo or a line of apple fans standing in the rain for the next iphone release you think that's reality when in fact when you look at the data you do see a couple things on the one hand you find out that people switch between computer all the time and people who buy apple also buy samsung and they buy lenovo and for most people apple is just another brand of computer so The sad thing is they don't put those people on the cover of Newsweek when there's a new Apple launch. They put the people in line in the tents. The second thing is there is a difference between some brands like Apple and the other brands. I mean, Apple is playing a very different game than most other computer makers, but they're playing a lot of different games differently. They're doing a lot of things that add up to a pretty sizable difference in how Apple behaves compared to Lenovo. It doesn't mean necessarily people love them as much. It just means they're playing a different game. And, and so they're not defying the laws. In fact, I think one of the stats I saw was only 25% of people perceive Apple as really unique or different.
0: Hmm, interesting.
1: And that's double the average for computers. So they're doing a lot better than the average, which is like 12%. And I think they drag the average way up. So they are getting excessive... Perceptions of difference and extra loyalty than you'd think, but it's still within generally the parameters of these laws. I mean, they're always wiggle room in the real world.
0: You know, it's funny because I grew up in the pre computer age, and I think that actually the the first computer I had was like no graphical user interface, just that black with With the green. Yeah, with the green, and I had to put the commands in, you know, if I wanted to do something. Yeah, exactly. But then I remember, I think maybe the next job I was exposed to The Mac, like that little square Mac Mm -hmm. that they used to have with like the little screen. The original Macintosh. The original Mac. And the first computer that I personally bought was a Mac because I was doing graphic design. And back then, if you were working in graphic design, you needed to have a Mac. And I was loyal until later when I went to buy a new computer. (laughs) Right. And the price differential was great. And for me at that time, saving money was more important. So I switched to a PC. And now I'm back to all Mac. So I'm kind of somebody who I really liked the Mac a lot back then, originally, but I was easily swayed to go the PC route. And I think I had different brands, you know, I wasn't really loyal to any non Apple brand. But I think that just proves your point, right? That depending on what the situation is, and the factors I, I do know there are some people that probably will never switch away from Apple sure. products, but sure. I was pretty easily swayed <laughs> to go in a yeah. different direction.
1: Yeah. The numbers say roughly, I don't know, 5 to 10% of people actually do stick to one brand in a particular category. The problem is the category is different for every different person. So I might be really loyal to my underwear, but I don't really care what socks I get. Mm-hmm. Or, like I said, I'm very particular about my kosher salt, but I don't care about my black pepper.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: you might have fallen in love with a certain set of headphones. And so you'll always get Bose or, you know, Sennheiser or whomever. But when it comes to microphones, you just read the reviews and see what's on sale. Mm-hmm. So the real the term I've been using lately is fickle. We're brand fickle. We're not brand loyal. We're brand fickle. And the fickleness captures the fact that. For a couple categories, we're very regular buyers and we know what we like and we do buy it regularly, but we can be swayed away at some point, or we get into a relationship with someone who likes a different brand and boom, we've switched. Mm-hmm. Or they changed their cut or style and we no longer like how it fits us. So boom, we switch.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So So how can marketers use people's brand fickleness to their advantage?
1: Well, step one is to really understand how people buy and the the patterns of buying that are fairly universal. And then you use that as a baseline or as a norm for how you measure how you're doing as a brand. For instance, I've heard a lot of brands bemoan the fact that they have switchers, people Mm -hmm. that switch between, you know, Tide and Arm and Hammer, let's say. Mm -hmm. Well, switching is normal. And if you see that as a baseline, then what you can look at is the relative difference between you and a competitor. Similarly, if you do a study of your brand attributes, uh, let's say you make toothpaste and you want to know, do people see it as good at fighting cavities, good for the whole family, uh, a company that does well for the planet? It turns out that these attributes are really correlated with your market share because people are just answering based on how familiar they are with you. So if you understand the laws and these empirical patterns, you can use those as your baseline to start to look at your deviations and your wiggle. There are deviations and wiggle from the laws in the same way that there are laws. Well, let's see, I'm an ecologist. So there are laws about animals and how we metabolize energy. Turns out every animal basically has the same number of heartbeats in its lifetime. Wow.
0: That's so yeah. interesting. So that, does that mean that like my dog's heart beats faster?
1: Yeah. And the cat's heart beats even faster. And, huh. wow. and a mouse, its heart beats even faster all the way down to like the smallest mammal, which is something like a shrew. And it goes the other way too. Cow's heart beats slower and then elephants and whales. Yeah, And their lives are longer too. So it's the same thing. A mouse has a short life and a whale has a long life. But there's wiggle. It's not going to line up perfectly along this line because, you know, nature's messy. Mm-hmm. So it's the same with brand science. I've heard people complain that the laws aren't laws because there are deviations from the laws, mm-hmm. but there are deviations from that perfect relationship around the heartbeat with your body size. But that's because nature is messy, the market is messy.
0: It can still guide you. That totally makes sense. Well, so now I'd like to shift to talk about that topic that I mentioned earlier that really, really intrigued me. And as I was reading it, you know, visually reading about what's the strongest brand attribute. And when I saw that it was sound, I was like, wow, that's super interesting. But then when I started thinking about that, the intel inside Mm -hmm. sound and, There are so many little audio triggers that we immediately associate with a particular brand. Right. I'd like you to talk about this and use the right terminology because I'm sure I did not. (laughs) But let's let's talk about that.
1: Sure. You're talking about a post I put up recently on LinkedIn that's really a summary. It's just one chart, frankly, from a study by Ipsos, which is a lovely Mm -hmm. study of a lot of their research on TV ads. So they play TV ads to people in kind of a slightly distracted environment at home or something. And then later in a a few minutes, they say, "Uh, do you remember any brands and which brands do you remember hearing ads from? And it turns out that the thing that sticks in people's brains most were sounds like the Intel sound Mm -hmm. or the the Duracell sound. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And then characters, if there was uh, the Michelin Man or Tony the Tiger or Flo from Progressive or maybe the Geico Gecko, people would remember seeing the ad then. And this was kind of the exact opposite of what were the brand assets or sometimes called distinctive elements or brand codes. There's lots of words for them, but the distinctive brand elements, that was the opposite of the most common distinctive brand elements, which were the logo and the slogan and the color so the brand colors would show through usually at an end frame or something like that. So it it was a great little piece of research to show that there's a brand asset that is very underutilized, but very powerful. And that's sound. And then another one which keeps coming up, which is these characters, because once you have a unique brand character like Snap, Crackle, and Pop, you know what brand that's for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's a great little study, lovely little piece of work. And all I did was I put it together into a, a chart that was pretty easy and visceral to read. And people are really enjoying that as a point of conversation about how to build their brand and how to make it stand out better on TV.
0: Yeah. Well, I'll have to figure out if I can somehow share that in the show notes, because I did find that really interesting. And I was actually talking with somebody recently on this podcast about how much I love the as weirdly as it is, I love the insurance commercials. Uh-huh. Geico. I've always thought Geico was so clever. And I think that many of the other brands have kind of picked up the gauntlet, like with Flow and with Mayhem. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then I think like Liberty Mutual now has the LeMu, which right. I think is a little bit weird.
1: Um, State Farm Aflac, has its.
0: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Like Jake from State Farm.
1: Yeah. yeah they've like, really got the, the message about this stuff, haven't they? The,
0: they really have. And I've always loved the Geico commercials. They're so entertaining. Like a lot of times I'll stop them, you know, cause I'm usually fast forwarding cause I've recorded mm-hmm. TV shows, but I'll stop them sometimes and go back and, you know, see Jamie and Flo on progressive because they, they really have this whole story arc going. Yeah. Um, yeah. So funny. Um, it's
1: funny. Cause it used to be that uh, a lot of ads were either direct selling you know, like
0: mm-hmm.
1: buy our paper towels because they're the strongest paper towel out there. Mm-hmm. Or they really knew their job was to entertain first and foremost. And there are lots of different camps of thinking around this. The research does show that ads that try and be explicitly salesy don't do as well. Right. The ads that tell stories, like actual characters going through an actual situation, with some actual knowing glances or mm-hmm. subtext. Those stories are interesting and funny and captivating. And yes, you absolutely need ways to link your brand into it, which is why Flo is a great character because mm-hmm. she can she can be in a story. But uh, we, we've fallen by the wayside in a lot of our marketing and especially all of the flotsam and jetsam on social media, which is just now it's a montage of flat imagery and a loud soundtrack and, spinning product and happy people. But those stories and that notion of just creativity, creative, funny and entertaining ads, those are actually the ones that do the best.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well I feel very rewarded. There's there's one commercial and I mentioned this on the other podcast, but I love it so much. I'll mention it here too. Sure. And it is one of the Geico commercials. And it's uh the lady in the kitchen making dinner and then she's got it's a rap group that does "Whoop, there it is," but oh, they're yeah. helping her make dessert, and it's "Scoop, there it is." There's so yep. much going on in that commercial. Like I've stopped it and rewatched. Ours. <laughs> it's just funny. I love it. I love it. Yes. it. Which is such a crazy thing to say about a commercial, but. uh, but
1: there it is. <laughs> uh, I'm going to plug a book by a long-standing luminary in the marketing world, Paul Feldwick. It just came out called "Why Does the Peddler Sing?" Mm-hmm. And it's that notion that you know, in the town square, when people were pulling out their wares to trade eggs for, you know, flax, the the peddler would sing to grab attention. Sure. Uh, yes. Whoop! There it is. It's a great ad. The Geico ad. Uh, yeah. I keep telling people about is the uh the pre-roll ad where the dog climbs on the table and eats the spaghetti.
0: Oh, I haven't seen that one, but I could totally relate with that.
1: Uh yeah, <laughs> yeah, we all can now. Push
0: our push our chairs in when we get up from the table. Yeah, I'll have to look for that one. Well, I like that I'll have to look up Paul Fedwig's book, but that's just remind me of like, well, why does the ice cream truck have music? Right, you know right. it's like so that we're saying, Oh the ice cream trucks here
1: so funny creative publicity
0: yeah yeah it's great and again what we're talking about is that sound right associating it and i've talked with several people on the podcast about podcasting and how in some ways we're kind of going back to the the age of radio right Mm -hmm. i mean that video is still important but i think there's something about audio that We can be doing other things Mm -hmm. and still experience audio, right? So you can be in your kitchen washing the dishes or
1: walking the dog.
0: Yeah, definitely. Or when the ice cream truck comes, you're outside playing if you're a kid and you hear the ice cream truck and you can go find it. Whereas you can't be watching something while you're doing something else. I mean, you shouldn't be. It might be dangerous if (laughs) if you're driving, watching videos. I know people do it.
1: Sound is powerful that way. And two points to that, I'd say, Terry. One is, first of all, radio. Weirdly enough, it never died. Radio is still a very great, yeah. healthy medium, and it's a great place to advertise. And it's undervalued and underutilized. My kids can sing the O O O O'Reilly song, you know, in perfect pitch all the time. O O O O'Reilly, auto parts. And then the other the other piece is just that notion of sound being one of the distinctive assets your brand should look into. Your brand is certainly a logo and it's certainly a product and package shape. You know, Palm Pomegranate Juice has a very distinctive bottle, Mm -hmm. just like uh, Coca Cola does. Right. Every element that you can add and every sense that you can add to your unique brand elements, your brand assets or attributes or equities, whatever people call them, Mm -hmm. then you've got more things for people to remember you by and to think of you by. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So that's why the Intel inside, dun 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 dun. Has been yeah, affected.
0: yeah, yes. exactly, and they always have that right when they're popping the logo up at the end, right. and, and it's such a intangible type thing too, right? Because mm-hmm. we all could buy computers and not care at all what kind of chip is inside of it, right? right. But they wanted to make that distinction, so people do care yeah. about that, right? And that's. Uh, Yeah, that's super interesting. So we were doing a little bit of a duet earlier before we hit record. I know that you have a TED Talk, and I watched part of your TED Talk before I got on today, and uh, I felt like it was a blast from my past. So let's talk about jingles.
1: Yes, let's talk jingles. Jingles. Let's talk jingles. (laughs) Jingles, I'm a huge fan of jingles and there was a golden age of jingles and they've fallen by the wayside, which is a real shame. And now there are all these really complex songs, but the jingle, it's an art and it's often a piece of a song. In fact, for instance, if I say one line and you can't help but follow it up, for instance, if I say, like a good neighbor,
0: State Farm is there.
1: Right. It turns out Barry Manilow wrote that in 1971 and it was the end of an entire song that went for a minute in the ad. What else did he write? He wrote, I am stuck on Band-Aid.
0: And band aid stuck on me.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to grow up.
0: I'm a Toys R Us
1: kid. These things get stuck in our head, these earworms. And jingles are, are great that way. And, and especially ones like I'm stuck on Band-Aid because band aid stuck on me. That's actually a product benefit. Band-Aid yeah. sticks to you even when it's wet. <laughs> so it's built in. So it was Good writing on Barry Manilow's part. I don't think he did the Toys R Us one, but he's done quite a few jingles.
0: I had no uh, idea he was a jingle writer.
1: Yeah. It turns out, I think, Justin Timberlake helped with the new McDonald's jingle. Oh, okay. ba 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 i am loving it.
0: Huh. Well, that does kind of sound like JT.
1: Yeah, it's a great hook. It's a great creative way to make a message and then make the message sticky.
0: Maybe you can talk to the science of this, but I think somehow audio is more intimate Mm -hmm. because you can be doing other things and listen. And I don't know, I just think it has an impact. Like maybe there's not as much of a defense or not as much of like competition for things that you listen to.
1: Uh, Yes, the impactful power of audio, the (laughs) intimacy of the audio signal going right into the amygdala. Actually, I don't don't know where audio goes, but we could look it up. Nonetheless, audio does go into a deep different part of your brain. In fact, when you hear a, a car backfire or a loud bang or gunshot or something, your body reacts before your conscious mind knows what it's doing, which is really a weird Thing to think. But you know, the conscious mind is really like the press secretary. It mm-hmm. thinks it's running the show, but it's not the president, it's just the press secretary. And we all know how powerful and moving music is, which is why you can put on a, a horror movie soundtrack and instantly your pulse goes up. And you know, you're like, I freak out if I just hear that kind of spooky music. So I always have to turn it down to like one. And then we all remember songs from when we're teenagers. Because of the power of audio, because of the power of music. And if you have media or opportunities to, to use audio with your brand, then by all means, yeah, you, you really should use it.
0: Yeah, maybe we're going to like, re-energize the jingle writing yes. profession. Bring back um, the jingle. <laughs> bring back the jingle. Yeah, as you're talking about the songs, I mean, yeah, it is really crazy about how Sometimes I don't even know where it comes from where I hear some song from when I was a little kid and I know every word to it. I mean, of course, I've heard it many times over the years, but I can just start singing it and know the words and be like, I don't even know where that comes from. Right. But it must go into a really deep part of your brain or your memory where you don't even really need to think about how it connects
1: with you. Yeah. The other day on Spotify, Hall & Oates came up and I found myself not just singing every word but knowing every guitar lick and every Mm -hmm. hi-hat. And I'm like, how the hell is Hall & Oates still stuck in my brain? I mean, yes, they're the number one pop duo of all time, but it's all stuck in there forever. In fact, there's some really neat things going on in retirement homes and nursing homes and other places where people are losing their memory,
0: Mm -hmm. where they Mm -hmm.
1: use music to reignite their memory. They play music from when they were young. And- Hmm. These days now that's like Benny Goodman. So they'll play some Mm -hmm. Benny Goodman songs and these folks will just light up. They'll wake right back up. It's amazing.
0: That's so cool. Yeah. That is very, very interesting.
1: So let's bring back the jingle.
0: Yeah. Let's definitely bring back the jingle. I think that it would make things more interesting. So looking ahead, what are some of the trends that you're seeing in the world of marketing and branding?
1: Well, it's not getting any easier. I think that with the excitement about the long tail, you know, when Amazon came on and the editor of Wired Magazine or someone wrote a book called The Long Tail saying now people who are really into, uh, you know, Japanese animation about World War II can have a fan base. And so you could have these micro clusters of people in the long tail of interests. What that has neglected to notice is that it's also created a a problem for people, which is now I've got 10,000 different channels to choose from. Last time Mm -hmm. I just had three
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, years ago, ago,
1: (laughs) we had three, but how do I choose among 10,000 channels or 10,000 books or 10,000 new TV series, not just on Disney, but also Netflix, but also Amazon and now Paramount plus and everyone else. And it's created a bigger head as they say. So the tail's gotten longer, but the head's gotten bigger. You've got fewer bigger hits, as well as that huge long tail of lots of tiny, tiny interests. So people are fighting to be at the top of that chart. And you'll see that more and more for brands that it's harder to be in the middle. If you're a, a consumer packaged good in the grocery aisles, it's hard for middle brands because you know either you're the big boss or... You're just a little tiny brand. So for brands, that's a tough place to be is to avoid that middle and to try and, and get their share of the big meaty head of the distribution. And to do that, you've got to be more creative and more interesting.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting. I was just listening to that and thinking as a consumer, you're absolutely right. I mean, the choice is a bit overwhelming. And I know Mm -hmm. I find myself sometimes just sort of putting up boundaries in a way to say, I've just made a conscious choice that like right now, for example, I just made a conscious choice that I actually have a membership to clubhouse. Mm -hmm. But I haven't really gone out there yet, because I have so much else going on in so many other areas that I really need to harness and and protect my focus a bit. You know, because it's so easy to get spread so thin that you lose your mind.
1: (laughs) We have to find ways to help us choose. And if there are too many choices, we just shut down. It gets too overwhelming.
0: Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Well, so tell me if somebody wanted to work with you what would be the type of thing that you would work with them on?
1: These days, there are a couple of ways I work with companies. I only work with a few companies a year just because of the, the kind of things I do in my schedule. But step one, I help teach companies about the laws of marketing. And so it's a quick training, but it gets everyone on the same page. And that's because companies often waste thousands of hours and millions of dollars because they don't all agree about how marketing even works. There's so many different pet <laughs> theories and beliefs. You've seen this yourself, Terry. I know. It.
0: Yes, my head's spinning around in a 360 right now. because uh, Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I've
1: worked at amazing creative agencies where we've had brilliant ideas that never saw the light of day, not because they, they're bad or not because they wouldn't work, but because the clients disagreed about how they even think marketing works. So step one, let's get on the same damn page. So I help teams do that using science. So it's a science-based playbook. It's a, a brand science 101 training. That's step one. Step two, I can help diagnose and assess your brand. So if your brand is struggling, and by brand, I mean, frankly, your entire reputation and and everything you do. But if your brand is struggling, if you slap your logo on something and the price goes down instead of up, then I can help assess the situation, diagnose some of the problems and point you towards some of the solutions that might actually work. The brand science piece helps there because there's a lot of wishful thinking in marketing and we believe we can push water uphill, right? So we believe we can make a small passion niche brand that everyone will love. Well, going back to your Harley point, Harley-Davidson, turns out that most Harley owners only own one Harley. They also have a Honda or a Suzuki or a BMW or whatever else, whoever else makes motorcycles. And Harley looks a lot like pretty much every other brand out there, which is a lot of light buyers, a few medium buyers, and very few heavy buyers. And the heavy buyers sometimes have an entire garage full of bikes, not just Harleys. Mm
0: -hmm. So anyway,
1: step one, I help train people on the brand science 101. Step two, I can help diagnose and assess how your brand is doing and how to fix it. And then step three, I do some custom and bespoke work to actually fix the brands.
0: Yeah, very cool. And I think that there is a tremendous need for that out there. And I'm going to have you tell us where to find you, but I have an observation and a question for you before we get there, because you touched on something that's come up again and again on Marketing Mambo. And that is some of the biggest issues in marketing are the fact that people are not on the same page. And in a lot of industries marketing sort of like fighting against the tide because maybe it's not a Procter & Gamble. It's not a marketing-driven organization. And there mm-hmm. is very much a lack of understanding of marketing and sometimes also a misunderstanding about who really owns the brand. And to the sure. point that you're making earlier, you know, the brand is not the logo. The brand is not the advertising. The brand is really the experience that people have with the product or service that the company makes. And Marketing has a limited influence over that. And a lot of times I've found that there's a lot of friction and conflict within the organization. And sometimes people in other areas of the company don't really want to engage with marketing or they Mm -hmm. don't understand that there's got to be more collaboration. There's got to be a lot more sharing of information in order for the company to put its best foot forward. So what would you say about that? I mean, do you see that frequently?
1: All the time. All the time, Terry. One, you're exactly right that marketing is bigger than advertising and they get confused all the time. On Twitter, there was just some comment about the four P's are dead. We now have the five E's or some, some crazy new thing. Mm-hmm. Well, no, the four P's are not dead. Pricing is still a goddamn issue that your team <laughs> has to figure out. And if the marketing team isn't involved in that, the marketing team is useless. Mm. So that is a function of marketing is to figure out your pricing strategy. That's one of the four P's, whether you're in B2B B or B2C, whether you sell luxury watches or chocolate. So I do see it all the time that there's confusion about what marketing is. There's confusion about who owns what. And then there's confusion about how to do marketing and how to do branding and how to do advertising. So the beauty of brand science is filtering through a whole lot of research and evidence in academia, outside academia, in the industry within company walls that they're willing to share and figuring out, as I said at the top, the bedrock that we can actually stand on to say, yes, there is something called the law of the repertoire of buying and that people do buy across a few different brands, whether you're buying potato chips or cars, it's a law. And now let's work off of that bedrock to build an amazing brand, but at least let's all stand on the same bedrock as a team so that we don't have one chunk of the organization believing that influencers and, and Bitcoin are different and unique and are going to revolutionize everything. Mm-hmm. And then another group saying, we still have to do what Tom Peters says from 1985. <laughs> yeah. And that's not a, a, a you know jab at Tom Peters. He's fantastic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ethan, you have really made me think, and I love that. So where can people find you?
1: The easiest place to find me is LinkedIn. That seems to be my community. So ehdecker at LinkedIn is an easy search. I'm also on Twitter at ehdecker. And then if you want to learn a little bit more about my offerings, you can go to appliedbrandscience.com. But the best thing to do is just drop me a line.
0: Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for being on Marketing Mambo.
1: Thank you for having me, Terry. It's been a lot of fun.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Mambo. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, like, and share. I'd love to hear from you. Check out the show notes for my social media and contact information. Until next time, adios.